1: In the autumn of 1642, King Charles I of England, Scotland and Ireland declared war on his own parliament, resulting in a civil war that turned his and his subjects' worlds upside down. Thousands of men took up arms on either side, and within a few years, those on the parliamentarian side were restructured into a radical new type of army, known as the New Model Army which soon proved itself devastatingly effective. Today we're going to focus on the new model army, on its formation, its composition, operation, leadership and power. How was it, as today's guest has suggested, an agent of revolution? This is no simple military history. There is no singular narrative of the army. It was led by commanders with different outlooks and not only did it help to engineer regicide, paradoxically, It was also instrumental in restoring a king. To try and understand a little of this complexity, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Ian Gentles, Distinguished Professor in History at Tyndale University, Toronto. Professor Gentles is widely regarded as the expert on the English Revolution, and he has written many books and articles on the subject, including his newest work, A Remarkable Feat of Research, The New Model Army, Agents of Revolution, published by Yale University Press this year. Professor Gentle, thank you so much for joining me today. It is a wonderful thing to me to be able to talk to you about this amazing piece of research. And, of course, there's so much more in this book than we can possibly cover in the podcast. But let's try. (laughs) So... Let's start with the basics. For those who are needing a little refreshing, could you just introduce what the new model army was, why it was founded, and why it was founded three years into the Civil War?
2: Yes, that's right. It was The Civil War broke out in 1642, in September of 1642, and it went unexpectedly badly for Parliament. And by the summer of 1643... Uh, It looked as though the king would either win or the war would be a draw, and the radicals in parliament became increasingly dissatisfied with the aristocratic leadership of the parliamentary army by people like the Earl of Essex, the Earl of Manchester, and others. And so, to cut a long story short, they decided in the autumn of 1644 to purge the aristocratic leadership. And the way they did this was by passing a motion called the Self-Denying Ordinance saying that no member of Parliament, either the Upper House, the House of Lords, or the Lower House, the House of Commons, could henceforth hold a military command in the Parliamentary Army. This, interestingly, meant that Oliver Cromwell, who was a member of the House of Commons, would have to give up his position in the Army. He was willing to do that in order to get rid of the aristocrats. And no one knew that he would return to the army. It looked for all the world as though he was gone. So, the House of Lords resisted and resented the attempt to purge the aristocrats from the army because, as they put it, the nobility have historically seen as their primary role to defend the country. And that's what they were doing in the parliamentary army, defending England against a tyrannical king. So they fought tooth and nail until basically Parliament, the lower house, I should say, pulled the rug out from under them and created a new army simply by choking off the funding of the existing army, directing all the funding to this new military force, which soon came to be known as the New Model Army because it was a refashioned military instrument and recruiting a new army, some of it from the wreckage of the old army. Many of the new soldiers, well, they weren't new soldiers because they had been in the Earl of Essex's infantry. They'd been in the Earl of Manchester's army. So they were ruthlessly recruited. And, of course, a large number of new soldiers were also recruited. And there was quite a bit of conscription. It was not an entirely volunteer army, although most of the cavalry were volunteers. Most of the infantry were conscripts. Anyway, this army very rapidly put together, and it was very rapidly funded with huge gobs of money. And it soon met its first challenge at the Battle of Naseby on June 14, 1645, and everyone thought that because the royalist cavalry were so much more experienced, that they would win easily. And to everyone's astonishment, the cavalry under Sir Thomas Fairfax, who was the captain-general of the army, and Oliver Cromwell, who, by a miraculous maneuver had been brought back into the army. We don't need to go into how that was done, but it was done with great political skill, despite the opposition of the House of Lords. It won this sensational victory at Naseby in Northamptonshire in, in the Midlands and then went on to win every other battle in the next year and a half.
1: And I want to come back to thinking about how it did that, or at least what was in place to make it so devastatingly effective in a second. But just focusing a little bit more into detail of that period of formation, the creation of the New Model Army. It seems clear from your book that in the 1640s, there were those who were for war and those who were for peace, these kind of parties, as it were, and. They are conflicting factions. How was a new army established in the midst of that factional dissent and the leaders chosen? And did that mean that they were ever united in aims or objectives or was there a great sort of dissonance about who wanted what?
2: Well, there very soon developed a great dissonance because in the beginning, everyone thought that the king, being a tyrant, had to be resisted. But very quickly, the moderates who became known as the Peace Party, then by 1645 became known as the Presbyterians because there is this kind of confusion between political Presbyterians, namely moderates, Peace Party men, and religious Presbyterians, there's a bit of overlap. And on the other hand, the Win the War Party, who became known as the Independents with a capital I, and there was quite a bit of overlap between them and the religious radicals, who were part of the religious grouping known as independents. So there's that sort of ambiguity and confusion. Now, increasingly, the, the moderates became alarmed by the social radicalism and political radicalism being expressed by the Win the War Party. And they got colder and colder feet, and they deplored the loss of life, the tremendous loss of life at the at the first Battle of Edge Hill in October of sixteen forty two, they they deplored the endless cost and simply the deep division that, that this was creating within the body politic. They found this completely deplorable. Whereas the Win the War Party took the position, we have to beat the king and we have to beat him soundly and decisively so that there's no question of his staging a comeback. So England was divided. Now how did the radicals get their way? Well, they got their way very cleverly by convincing the moderates because there were many people who were neither Presbyterian nor independent, neither war party nor peace party, but sort of in the middle and didn't quite know what to believe. So they convinced these moderates that, and of course, The use of religious language was profoundly endemic at that time, that the struggle against the king had been characterized by sin and guilt, and they needed to refashion their effort and purge the sin. And this meant getting rid of much of the existing leadership who simply had been setting a bad example. And so... Zouch Tate, who was actually a moderate Presbyterian, he was the one whom they got to introduce the self-denying ordinance, and he made a very moralistic speech, which then Oliver Cromwell stood up and endorsed. But it was a very moralistic speech saying, we have sinned and we have to amend our ways, and the way to do this, so that there will be no more suspicion of corruption, suspicion that we're in this for profit, for personal gain. In order to eliminate any popular suspicion of our motives, we must all renounce any military leadership for the parliamentary cause. And this appealed to the moderates. They said, yes, yes, that's the way out, this act of self-renunciation. So it was a very clever maneuver. And We shouldn't be entirely cynical. I think uh, Oliver Cromwell, in um, December of 1644, he was prepared to give up his military command. It was only later that he changed his mind and realised that he was the best cavalry commander and Parliament really needed him and he should try and get back into the army. And enough other people agreed with him that that they let him back into the army.
1: So in their minds, the difference between the new model army, and the previous army was one of it being much more morally elevated and free from corruption. What's the difference in your mind? How do you think it was more effective? Presumably not just because (laughs) it was not morally tainted.
2: It was very well funded, and that was essential. Parliament realised that it had to stop the depletion of funds because what this had resulted in was the army taking what was called free quarter. In other words, because they weren't being paid regularly, they had to be quartered on civilian householders. And just imagine if you were a respectable farmer or tradesman, and suddenly the army came to you and said, well, you have to put up three of our soldiers, possibly for one night, possibly for many nights. and. Think of the impact of this on your family, on your children, perhaps on your daughters. So it was causing great indignation. So Parliament determined that they were going to raise the money. And for the first year or two, they were very successful at raising the money. Now, the next thing is morale. And a lot of people underestimate the importance of morale in an army. Napoleon put it succinctly when he said in war... The spiritual is three parts and the material is one part. In other words, this great secular materialist, Napoleon, recognized the fundamental importance of morale. And so did Julius Caesar and other great military leaders have always known that morale is tremendously important. The new model army was blessed with tremendous morale. And of course, it didn't hurt that they won their first great battle. And with every succeeding battle, the morale just got greater and greater. And so they became invincible. So I would argue that morale was of fundamental importance right from the start, and it just became increasingly important until the 1650s when things started to unravel and the armies lost its sense of moral and political and religious direction and became just another institution, increasingly forgetful of the inspiring ideals that had launched it
1: that's a masterful piece of analysis because what you've just shown is that actually this question of the moral status of the army and how they thought about it coupled with of course being paid and being fed and watered and all those things but that belief in themselves was absolutely crucial to success. I mean and and this feels like it's a lesson that can be applied outside of a military tactic. <laughs> you know, it's you believe you can do it you you know what do they say if you think you can or if you think you can't you're right. You know, there's it feels very much that at the heart of this that belief in themselves really was crucial. And that's such a fascinating insight, because whenever I've heard about the new model army before, it's always been thinking in terms of its logistical and financial negotiations, with it, which is important. But you've just pointed out it isn't the whole story by any means.
2: And I think what I should have also emphasized, which I do in the book, is that it was a very religious army. It was commonly referred to as the praying army. The godly army. And we see evidence of this time and time again in the pamphlets that they published, in the speeches. And most of the leaders Thomas Fairfax, Philip Skippen, the major general of the infantry, Oliver Cromwell himself, who was possibly the most religious uh, military leader England has ever had they had Bible study, they had sermons several times on a Sunday. They actively prayed. They formed gathered churches. The regiments, not all of them, but several of them, formed themselves into gathered churches. In other words, religious congregations. And this enormously enhanced their morale because they thought that they were carrying out God's will. And you can imagine, in the context of the 17th century, this is a very powerful motivation. You're not just, you're not just fighting a war on secular issues. You are fighting God's struggle. They conceived of it as a struggle against Roman Catholicism. Now, you might say, well, Roman Catholicism wasn't very strong at the time, but it was international Roman Catholicism, which was very threatening to Protestants in England, and it was also a fear that Charles I, under the malign influence of his French Catholic wife, Henrietta Maria, was going to lead England back into Roman Catholicism. And this was a very inflammatory belief, which which was profoundly shared by certainly the leadership, if not the rank and file. Most of the infantry really, I don't think, enjoyed the luxury of political beliefs. But the cavalry certainly did. The cavalry were were men who thought for themselves, and they most of them were... Deeply religious.
1: Now, what's the relationship between that morale, that motivation, that religious sort of drive, and the composition of the army? Because you mentioned that a number of people, a number of men had been conscripted to the army. So, how should we understand that relationship?
2: Well, it's very interesting. A lot of people don't realize that virtually all of the infantry were conscripted. And as far as I can tell, virtually none of the cavalry were conscripted. And there is a social distinction too. The infantry were very much lower class men, often men who were scooped up off the streets of London because they had no other occupation and they were just shoveled into the infantry and and the desertion rate in the infantry was very high and they... It constantly had to be replenished. The cavalry were men of a higher social standing. They were what were called at the time the middling sort of people, skilled craftsmen, yeomen, sometimes even minor gentlemen. And they did enjoy the luxury of political opinions and they tended to be deeply religious. And they tended to be, not all of them, but Many of them were men who could afford to buy their own horses because to be in the cavalry, of course, you had to have a horse. Now, sometimes Parliament supplied that horse, but quite often people brought their own... The cavalry troopers brought their own horse to the army. So it's it's very much a social distinction. And Oliver Cromwell, in a famous statement, said that he basically didn't care about the social class. He He didn't want high-born people in the army. He said, I'd rather have a plain russet-coated captain that knows what he fights for and loves what he knows than that which you call a gentleman and is nothing else. And those words have remained etched in people's minds ever since. A plain russet-coated captain. In other words, a very middling sort of person but who knows what he fights for and loves what he knows. Again, morale. Morale.
1: Absolutely. But let's talk about that desertion rate. Why were people deserting? Were they deserting to the royalist armies or were they just saying, I don't want to be part of this battle? Does it suggest a kind of political indifference or just a hatred of of war, I guess?
2: I think more political indifference. And also, once you got your bonus, your signing bonus of two shillings, that was a lot of money. To somebody who had never had very much money, and they were strongly tempted simply to run away, uh, which they did in large numbers. They would run back to London, and it would be very hard to track them because many of them really had no fixed address. They just lived on the streets. Now, as for deserting to the royalists, that occasionally happened, but what happened more often was that when the new model had won a battle, large numbers of royalists would desert to the new model. I'm talking about infantry, because they could see who the winning side was. They could say, you know, if we join them, we're going to be on the winning side, and we'll probably be well-fed, and we know that Oliver Cromwell is a very effective military commander, and increasingly, people in the new model army, including especially the infantry, felt safe with Oliver Cromwell. They knew, and he established this very early, that he would take care of them. He would make sure that they were properly fed, properly paid, properly clothed, and that he wouldn't needlessly risk their lives in battle. He, was all, he always took his time in preparing for a battle. He never rushed headlong into a battle. He would sometimes wait for days or even weeks until he had all the money, all the boots. For example, when he was on the way to meet the king in 1648 in the Second Civil War. He waited several days at Northamptonshire until the the shoemakers of Northamptonshire had fully shod his men. He didn't want them going into battle with uh, worn through boots. That's an illustration of how well he took care of his men. And because he took care of his men, they felt safe with him. And that is of course another component of high morale.
1: In other words, The study of this army can teach us much about the nature of good leadership, can't it?
2: Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, leadership. And
1: is this just Cromwell? I mean, should we talk about Fairfax? Are there other generals that we should look to when we want to know about good leadership in this period?
2: Yes, Fairfax, unfortunately, has been rather overshadowed by Cromwell. In the beginning, everybody thought correctly that Fairfax was a wonderful military leader. He was a man of great courage, for one thing. He uh, fearlessly risked his life again and again. He had had many years of experience fighting on the continent for the Protestant cause in the 1630s. And then when the war broke out, he joined his father, Ferdinando Fairfax, in the Northern Army, based in Yorkshire, where he won several distinguished battles. And so, He was the obvious man to lead the new model. And it was only after he resigned on a matter of principle in 1649, because he didn't want to invade Scotland, that Cromwell took over. So for the first four years, Fairfax was in charge. And he too, like Cromwell, was deeply religious. He can claim, I think, almost equal credit for the victory at Naseby because of his fearless leadership. And his men had a tremendous admiration for him, partly because he was such a good leader, partly because he was fearless and didn't hesitate to risk his life in battle and the other major leader Philip Skippen also inspired his men by his personal courage and this was illustrated at Naseby where he was badly wounded and actually was out of action for over a year being carefully nursed back to health and, of course, when he did come back to the army in 1646, he was greeted with an ecstatic welcome because his infantry were so delighted to see him. Now, he was, if anything, more religious than Cromwell. He wrote five very pious pamphlets, and he kept repeating to his men that they were fighting God's battles. So, leadership and In contrast to the Royalist Army, which was riven with conflict and interpersonal jealousies, Prince Rupert, who was the head of the cavalry, attracted a great deal of jealousy on the part of the older leaders because Charles favored him because he was Charles's nephew. Mind you, he was a very talented cavalry leader. But the point is that there was deep division in the Royalist Army. And that sapped their morale tremendously. So you have the contrast between high morale in the new model and low morale in the royalist army, which, of course, continued to sink deeper and deeper the more battles they lost.
1: Now, clearly, continuing to resource an army on this scale over the period of time that it was necessary, several years, would have been a huge logistical feat. How did Parliament manage to raise this money? especially as you've got the king also trying to raise money at the same time.
2: That's right. And sometimes they were trying to raise money in the same county because several counties were contested territory, like Northamptonshire, for example. Well, they raised it by means of a tax which had already existed, the weekly assessment, which later became the monthly assessment. And it was levied on each county, And of course, the number of counties under Parliament's control steadily increased as it won more and more battles. And it was essentially a land tax. So it was the gentry who paid it. It was the yeomanry who paid it. And the urban population were left relatively unscathed as far as taxation went. But after the first year and a half, people became increasingly tired of having to pay the monthly assessment because it was several times greater than the what was known as the subsidy, which was the tax that the king had levied on counties. And people didn't fail to notice that Parliament's taxation was much heavier than the king's taxation had ever been. And so people started to grumble and say, have we gone into this war just to pay heavier and heavier taxation? So. Parliament had to resort to other sources of revenue. And in 1646, they decided, aha, what about the bishops' lands? Because the bishops controlled something close to one-sixth, like I say controlled, owned, something like one-sixth of the land of England. So Parliament simply confiscated the bishops' lands and put them up for sale and used the money to keep paying the army. Well, that soon ran out. After they had executed the king in 1649... They said, hmm, the royal estates, the crown lands, and that was close to one-third of the land of England. So they simply confiscated that, put it up for sale, and used that to pay the army. And that lasted less than a year, actually. And then what did they do? Oh, they confiscated what they called delinquent land, which meant land belonging to royalists. They didn't do this in a blanket sense, like they didn't confiscate every piece of property belonging to a royalist, but every royalist who sort of stepped out of line after being defeated would see his estates confiscated. So again, they confiscated well over a million pounds worth of royalist land, and that kept them going again for another year or so. Then by the 1650s, they'd run out of this confiscated land, and it was living from hand to mouth from then on and the army fell increasingly into debt until by, by 1659 the cupboard was bare and they were over two million pounds in debt to the army. So the arrears had really accumulated and of course this contributed to the increasingly low morale of the army in the late 1650s. the tyrant really was Julius Caesar? Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? Well, you can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week,
0: every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to the Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Okay, I want to pick up on that because your book is subtitled Agents of Revolution and you explore in your wonderful, lively, readable prose, several moments where the army is acting as that agent. Let's start with the first I want to look at, which is Regicide, the road to Regicide. I I found it fascinating to learn about regimental petitions and pamphlets calling for the prosecution of the king, so the soldiers themselves wishing to turn the world upside down. Can you tell us a bit about these demands and whether they suggest that the soldiers had a, a political energy of their own? So were they, in this instance acting as an agent of revolution or collectively?
2: Yes, I think they were very much. Now, historians debate the extent to which that radical secular movement known as the Levelers, based in London, advocates of increasing democracy, not democracy in the modern sense, for example, they didn't advocate votes for women. And there were large numbers of women in the leveller movement, and they didn't advocate votes for women either, because the time simply wasn't ripe. Nobody thought about it. It didn't occur to anybody that women should have the vote in the mid-17th century. So you have this radical movement called the levellers, and they see that the army could potentially implement their agenda. They want to end monopolistic corporations. They want complete religious liberty. They want a drastic extension of the franchise. Basically, they want the adult male franchise. And they start propagandizing the army. And the army are very receptive, especially the lower officers. They tend to be the real radicals. The higher officers tend to be more politically moderate. Now, there is the occasional higher officer, like Colonel Thomas Rainborough, who was a deep radical, and he's the one who stood up at Putney when they had their famous debates on the agreement of the people, which was the basically leveler blueprint for political reform. And he said, the poorest he that is in England hath a life to live as the greatest he. And therefore, truly, sir, I think it obvious that any man who puts himself under a government ought first by his own free will, I'm paraphrasing, put himself under that government. In other words, have a say in electing the government that rules him. This was very radical, and Henry Ayrton, who was the commissary general of the new model, stood up immediately and argued, no, only people with property, only people who have a stake in the country, an economic stake in the country, ought to have the vote. Well, most of the officers did not agree with Henry Ayrton. Most of the officers agreed with Thomas Rainborough. And it's arguable that... They took the bit between their teeth. They were not manipulated by the levelers. This used to be a fairly common view that the levelers sort of infiltrated and manipulated the officers, the lower officers, and converted them to their will. I think it's much clearer, and people like Phil Baker and John Morrell have made this point, I think, quite validly, that the army knew its own mind and that it was an independent agent of radical change. So it was an agent of revolution. It, in fact, the, the great majority of the army council, that's the council of junior and senior officers, wanted to implement the agreement of the people. That's often not realized. I think I established that point in the book, that the officers, most of them, wanted the agreement of the people. They wanted to see it implemented. So In that sense, they were agents of revolution. Now, in another sense, the other sense in which they were an agent of revolution is that they, more than any other body, engineered the regicide. And, of course, there's a big debate about the regicide, which I try and navigate in the book as well.
1: And yet, extraordinarily, you also mention that it is the army who are acting as an agent of revolution, paradoxically, it seems to us at least, in bringing Charles I's son to the throne in 1660. Now, maybe you've already kind of alluded to why that was (laughs) with the money situation. But do you see that this was an act of the majority of the new model or led by a faction within it?
2: It was overwhelmingly the work of General George Monk, who was the commander of the army in Scotland,
1: Tell me more about the role of the new model army and the regicide then, please.
2: Yes. Well, as early as 1647, certain officers like Colonel Thomas Harrison were beginning to refer to Charles I as that man of blood. Now, that is a phrase heavy with significance. What does it mean when you say that the king is a man of blood? That means that you think, you believe profoundly that the king is responsible for the blood that has been shed in the Civil War. It's his fault. If he hadn't been an absolutist king, if he hadn't violated the laws of England so brazenly, if he hadn't provoked a civil war, none of this bloodshed would have happened. It's all his fault. He's a man of blood. Well, what should the punishment be for a man of blood? Well, the answer is in the Bible he who commits murder, you shall not suffer him to live. The king is guilty of treason, he's guilty of murder, and therefore he has forfeited his right to live. More and more officers in the army are saying that from 1647 onwards. When the king, having been soundly defeated in 1646, then plots with the Scots, who have switched sides because they're so afraid of the radicalism that they see in the new model army, and joins the king, and he feels confident that he can now launch another civil war and win it. And so the new model army has to take up arms again and go and beat the king a second time. And they are very embittered by this because they've won fair and square, and now they have to risk their lives again. And they're very conscious of having to risk their lives a second time. And so they are very, very angry with the king And this is when the petitions start flooding in from one regiment after another into headquarters, demanding that the king be brought to justice. Now, they don't say that the king be executed. They say he should be held account for his treason. They accuse him of treason. What's the penalty of treason? The penalty is death. What's the penalty for murder? Capital punishment. So, it's quite clear. Now, other scholars have argued, well, yes, this was the grassroots feeling in the army. But higher officers were a bit more cautious. And Oliver Cromwell, for example, agreed on the necessity that the king be brought to justice and by implication that he be executed for his crimes. But they didn't agree on exactly when this should happen. There has been an argument that if he made a full confession of his guilt, if he abdicated the throne and basically went off to France with his wife and lived happily ever after there and didn't bother England anymore, perhaps they would let him off. Now that's one line of reasoning and there is a strong school of thought that supports that line of reasoning. However, I support the other line of reasoning that the army were determined to bring him to the scaffold and they showed their determination in December of 1648 when Parliament was still being stubborn and insisting on continuing peace negotiations with the king, and the army were saying, what? How can you possibly negotiate with this man of blood, this man who has twice plunged the country into civil war? How can you possibly do that? And so, on December the 6th, 1648, they stood outside Parliament, Colonel Pride was in charge, and they... Prevented anybody who supported negotiation with the king from entering the House of Commons. They thereby got rid of roughly two thirds of the House of Commons, and the only people who were left in it—about a hundred or hundred and twenty-five at the most—were basically people who supported the army. So the army had created a purged House of Commons in its own image, a purged Parliament that was willing to do the army's will and. After that, they got Parliament to nominate a High Court of Justice, an unprecedented legal body, completely unconstitutional, completely revolutionary, to try the King for treason against the English people. Well, the crime of treason against the English people had never existed before. So you can see how revolutionary all this is. It's a revolutionary overthrow of Parliament, It's a revolutionary overthrow of the law because they are creating a new court and they are creating a new law, namely treason against the English people. And Charles, of course, points out that this crime has never existed before and he refuses to plead. And so after a week or so, they decide that he has to go. Now, it's true that only a minority of this court, there were 135 commissioners on the the Court of High Commission, were... Military officers, but they were the ones who drove the trial forward. And it's highly significant that when they had convicted him and sentenced him to death, they still had to prepare the death warrant and get the people, the members of the court, to sign the death warrant. And most of them didn't want to sign it. They were afraid because they were putting their names to the king's death sentence. And in the end, only 59 signed it, and it was only that many because the day after the death warrant had been prepared, or two or three days after, I should say, Oliver Cromwell stood outside the House of Commons saying, I will have your signatures. He's holding the death warrant in his hands, and he said, I will have your signatures now. And he virtually forced the MPs, because a large number of the MPs were members of the Court of High Commission, to sign the death warrant. He twisted their arms. And in fact, a couple of them got off at the restoration for having signed the death warrant on the plea that they had been forced into it by Oliver Cromwell. So the army is at this point, at this climax of the revolution, very much the agent of revolution.
1: And it's so fascinating what you've just described about this way of playing with the truth with these legal niceties of creating a crime that hasn't existed before, and Charles quite fairly saying, "How can I commit treason? I'm the king. I mean you can only commit treason against me, but that this is being driven through very much by this power of the army and yet, paradoxically, in your book, you go on to talk about the army as an agent of revolution in bringing Charles the I's son to the throne as well in sixteen sixty so how did that happen?
2: Well, it was very much the accomplishment of George Munt. We have to give tribute to human agency. You know, they didn't just drift into restoration. By 1659, first of all, Oliver Cromwell had died, and he was the man who held the revolution together. When the morale became increasingly problematical, and people started to wonder what's the purpose of this regime? Why are we in power? What are we doing here? The unpopularity of the regime was increasing every month. The financial exigencies of the regime were increasing every month. And it was clear that more and more people thought, this is so unstable, the future is so uncertain. Wouldn't it be better just to have the king back? In other words, the king's son, who is calling himself Charles II. Wouldn't things be just easier if we called him back? Well. Of course, the army has all the levers of power and when they get a parliament that they don't like, they just dissolve it and call a new parliament and then they have a brief experiment in a naked military dictatorship called the reign of the major generals in the mid-1650s. And that doesn't work and they have to disband the reign of the major generals. And then after Oliver dies, he names his son, which is kind of naked exercise in monarchy, really, when you look at it, he names his son as his successor, as Lord Protector. That had been his title since 1654, Lord Protector, because he refused the title of king, even though it was pressed on him very, very strongly. But the trouble is that Richard is not the man his father was. He has had almost no military experience. He commands very little respect in the army and he doesn't have much political experience and next to no political skill. So the army becomes progressively disillusioned with him and essentially forces him out of power. And then there's a vacuum because we no longer have a Lord Protector You no longer have a Republican regime. You no longer have a parliament. There's a political vacuum. Who fills the political vacuum? The army under very second-rate political and military leadership. Charles Fleetwood, John Lambert, Thomas Desborough. And they govern without basically in this vacuum calling themselves a republic, which technically they are, but commanding virtually no popular support. Tax revenue dries up because... People essentially go on a tax strike. So, the commander in Scotland, George Monk, who has a very distinguished military and naval record, he commanded the Navy for a year and a half, he says, enough is enough. We have no business trying to rule the country, trying to rule the three nations, England, Scotland, and Ireland, because that's what the army was doing. It was governing England, Scotland, and Ireland. And he's in charge of Scotland, he does does a very good job of keeping Scotland peaceful and under control, keeping the revenue flowing in. And he says, it's high time we returned power to the civil authority. Namely, recall parliament. Recall the purged long parliament. That's his beginning demand. He steadily increases his demands the autumn of 1659, and then the early months of 1660. He changes his demand to the unpurged long parliament. We must recall the unpurged long parliament. Well, about a quarter to a third of them have already died, but still, that would be better than nothing, because he doesn't dare call for free elections, because everybody recognizes that free elections would result in the return of a royalist parliament, and a royalist parliament the first thing it would do would be to invite the king back. George Monk realizes that there is still very strong Republican sentiment within the army, and so he treads very softly, very carefully, very gradually, building support, and meanwhile his opponents, Fleetwood, Desborough, Lambert, and a whole host of others, accuse him of basically being a tool of monarchy, They can see which way he's headed, even though he says, he says, no, 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 I'm in favor of the Commonwealth. I'm in favor of the Republic. I'm in favor of the continuation of the existing structure, the the existing political structure. I just think that we have to bring Parliament back because England has never been governed by an army before. This is unprecedented and and it is dictatorial and we have no business trying to rule the country. And so he takes his stand on return of the civilian authority. And by the time, as I say, he proceeds by stages. And when the unpurged parliament has, has returned and they are sort of running the country with just a fraction of their former numbers, there are barely 100 of them. And parliament is, you know, well, well over 500 in, when it's at full strength. So there's an increasing demand for the unpurged long parliament which everybody knows will mean the return of the king. And Monk finally tips his hand on February the 10th when he tells the purged long parliament that you have to call back the people who were purged in 1648 to have something approaching a full parliament. The people in London are so jubilant at this turnaround because he throws a cordon of soldiers around parliament and says... I'm not letting you function until you agree to bring back the unpurged law parliament. People are so jubilant be- because they see fully the implications of this that we have and we are so fortunate in having Samuel Pepys' The Diarist, the great 17th century diarist. We have his description of that celebration on the night of February the 11th when London simply erupted in ecstatic celebration. I can read you the passage. I have it right in front of me, if, if you think we have time, because it so vividly describes what I think Ronald Hutton called the wildest celebration in London's history.
1: Go on, read it. I think it would be lovely to give such a, a sort of flavour of what people felt about it.
2: it. It shows you, I think, it it shows, I mean, some people have questioned this. Does this really reflect London public opinion? I think there's no doubt it does. Okay, so it's the night The party has begun, right? And Samuel Pepys writes this. And indeed I saw many people give the soldiers drink and money and all along in the streets cried, God bless them, and extraordinary good words. And so we went to the Star Tavern where we drank. In Cheapside there was a great many bonfires and all the bells in all the churches as we went home were a ringing. Hence we went homewards, it being about ten o'clock. But... The common joy that was everywhere to be seen. The number of bonfires, there being 14, between St. Dunstan's and Temple Bar. And at Strand Bridge, I could, at one view, tell 31 fires. In King Street, 7 or 8, and all along, burning and roasting and drinking for rumps. I should have said that the Purge Parliament soon became known as the Rump because it was just a, a fraction of its former number. So this highly humorous satirization of the Purge Long Parliament. Drinking for rumps, there being rumps tied upon sticks and carried up and down. The butchers at the Maypole in the Strand rang a peal with their knives when they were going to sacrifice their rump on Ludgate Hill. There was one turning of the spit that had a rump tied upon it and another basting of it. Indeed, it was past imagination, both the greatness and the suddenness of it. At one end of the street, there was a whole lane of fire and so hot that we were fain to keep still on the further side merely for the heat. So the butchers of London brought all their rumps of beef and roasted them and distributed them to the people. And of course, there was lots of free drink flowing. So you can imagine what a tremendous party that was on the night of February the 11th, 1660. And this is the real turning point, and it was all engineered by George Monk. And within less than three months, the king had come back. And Monk had very, very carefully sidelined and neutralized all the Republican Sentiment, which was still quite sizable. There were still a lot of genuine Republicans. They, they talked about the good old cause, and it was kind of a wistful phrase the good old cause, the revolutionary cause that we used to believe in, that we used to forward, and now seems to be dissipating. And this is signified, and I want to give credit to the army by the fact that the king promised that the army would have its arrears fully paid if it peacefully acquiesced in his restoration. Well, it's reliably estimated that 30% of the cavalry resigned from the army rather than recognize the king, because as a condition of getting their arrears back, they had to recognize the king's authority. 30% of the cavalry, not the infantry, because they, as I said, really didn't enjoy the luxury of political opinions. 30% of the cavalry resigned from the army. So they forfeited a lot of money and they did this entirely out of principle. So there is still this heart of the army which continues to believe in the revolutionary cause, but they have been completely outmaneuvered by George Monk.
1: Finally then, to bring us to a close, in this period after February 1660, Have you come across any evidence of the lives of the former soldiers and officers? Many of them were protected by this act of indemnity, but you've argued that they've been members of an army which has been an agent of revolution. So did they shout about, you know, the good old cause or did they retire quietly? Do you think there are stories yet to be told about them after 1660?
2: There may well be stories. Four, we know that four of the officers were executed for their role in the regicide. Well, what happened to all the others? Some of them fled. Colonel Ludlow fled to Switzerland. Colonels Whaley and Goff fled to New England. And they managed to escape the people who were sent out to capture and, if necessary, kill them. Other people, like Sir Arthur Hazelrig, who had been an important supporter of the army, John Lambert, who was not a regicide but had opposed the king so effectively that Charles seriously meditated bringing him to the scaffold, but in the end didn't, just kept him in prison till the end of his life in the Tower of London. And most of the other officers, well, well like Sir Charles Fleetwood, he was let off because he was not, he happened not to be a regicide. Desborough was let off. Uh, Skippen had already died. They dug up the corpses of as many regicides as they could, like Ireton, like Cromwell, like Colonel Pride. Sorry, they intended to dig up Pride's corpse, but for some reason didn't get around to it. And they hung these, they disemboweled their corpses. In other words, they treated them to the most humiliating punishment they possibly could, which is the punishment for treason, being disemboweled, and then decapitated and their corpses hung Cromwell's head was stuck on a spike outside the House of Commons, and it stayed there for 28 years until 1688. And then somebody said, shouldn't we take down Cromwell's head? There it stayed for 28 years. Well, most people were allowed, most officers were allowed simply to retreat into private life. Richard Cromwell, for example, was not punished in any way, really. None of Cromwell's children were punished. So... It was, as restorations go, as counter-revolutions, because it was a complete counter-revolution. The original title I suggested, which was rejected by the publisher, was The New Model Army, Agent of Revolution and Counter-Revolution, because in 1660, it was very much a counter-revolution. So, by as counter-revolutions go, it was relatively unvindictive. Only a few people were punished. And most of the rest were let off. And as I pointed out, had their arrears paid in full. And this is an astonishing achievement because the Republic had not been able to pay these soldiers their arrears. And yet Charles did it in very quick time.
1: Well, it's been an amazing tour in this podcast through your great research into the New Model Army, and just to sort of see how very important they were, how decisive actually in the course of history in the 17th century this particular institution and the men who made it up were. And that comes out so clearly in your book and has done in this podcast. So if people want to know more, they should pick up a copy of your book, The New Model Army Agents of Revolution, published by Yale University Press this year, because as we've learned... Over the course of our time together, this is really the study of power, of leadership, of how you make decisive change. And you've done that so well for us today. Thank you so much.
2: It's been a pleasure talking with you.
1: Thank you for listening to Not Just the Tudors. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It seems about time, frankly, that you got a chance to speak to us too. So we have belatedly launched a Twitter account, which is at NotJustTudors. Please write to me on there and say what you would like to hear podcasts about. Or if Twitter is not your thing, we also have an email address, which is NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com.